0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Boland, President Emeritus of KQED and a member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors, and I'm really delighted to welcome you here this evening. It's really wonderful to see live people here. Uh, this is what this building was built for, for gatherings just like this, and I'm really want to welcome you after a couple of very challenging years. For those of you joining us online, uh, and thank you for joining us uh, on our YouTube channel. Now, to be sure that we can hear the conversation, please be sure to turn off your technology, anything that beeps, buzzes, or lights up. Everyone online and everyone in the room will really appreciate it. And as always at the Commonwealth Club, we welcome your questions. Uh, Question cards will be collected throughout the program, and for those of you online, please use the chat feature on YouTube to share your questions. Now I'm pleased to introduce our guests. In keeping with the long tradition at the Commonwealth Club, having hosted Theodore Roosevelt in 1911, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1932, it's my distinct honor to welcome another Roosevelt to our stage to discuss the important issues facing our country and how to better understand our history. Constitutional scholar Kermit Roosevelt III will discuss his latest book, The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story, Roosevelt is the David Berger Professor for Administration of Justice at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School and the great-great-grandson of US President Theodore Roosevelt. In The Nation That Never Was, Roosevelt examines essays, history, and writings throughout American history to show that modern America is not the ideological descendant of the Founding Fathers, but rather derives from Lincoln's Reconstruction period after the Civil War. In the book, he argues that the ideas of fairness and equality that permeate our culture were not at all supported by our Founding Fathers, and that by understanding this, we can better grasp our trajectory as a nation." Mr. Roosevelt is joined by David Spencer, founder of Sen Spa and a member of the Commonwealth Board of Governors, who will lead this conversation. Please join me in welcoming Kermit Roosevelt and David Spencer.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. It's really great to have you here. I understand
2: this is not your first time here. You were a visitor to our old building at one point. Yes, I was here, I think, about seven years ago. Uh, but it's great to be back. Well, good,
1: good. Well, let's get right to it. You know, I'd love to... So my first question is about, you know, what your inspiration for this book was. I mean, what was... Um, how long was it percolating inside you and... Um, you know, was there a particular topic? Was there a watershed event or something that made you feel that, you know, you had to you had to tell this
2: story? Well, there were there were a couple of events. Um, so I started thinking about this really along the lines laid out in the book probably 10 years ago when I was asked to write a review of a couple of books by a former Yale professor of mine, a professor named Jack Balkan. Um, who sets out sort of what I call the standard story, this idea that America's fundamental ideals are there in the Declaration of Independence and they're fought for in the Revolution and then they're made law in the 1787 Constitution and then sort of progressively realized over time. And this made me look more closely at the Declaration of Independence and start reading it and think about the way that its argument works and what it meant for Jefferson to say all men are created equal Um, And the other thing that I noticed was we pay a lot of attention to the Declaration of Independence and the 1787 Constitution. We find this notion of equality in there. And I think it's a little bit hard to do, as I maybe will explain more later. Um, But we don't pay very much attention to the constitutional provisions that are explicitly about equality. So, you know, we pay less attention to the 14th Amendment. Um, And I started wondering why. Why is that? And are there other examples of us doing this thing? And what have different historical figures said the story of Martin Luther King turns out to be incredibly interesting from that perspective? Um, So I was thinking about this sort of gradually for for the past 10 years. Um, But then, like many Americans, I think I developed a heightened concern about issues of racial justice with the Black Lives Matter protests. And I started thinking about it from that perspective, too. Um, you know, what what is the effect of this story that we tell? Is there a better story? What's the best way forward if we want to be a nation dedicated to equality?
1: Yeah, you know, and as we were as we were talking about before, when you think about it, you know, Reconstruction was supposed to be like the start of you know black civil and political rights in this country, right? But it took really, until the Supreme Court sanctioned same-sex marriage in 1967, more than 100 years after the war, before you can really be born as a black person in this country and and have full rights.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think that to say that as a black person in this country, you have full rights is maybe even still a little bit optimistic. Well, by law, unfortunately. Well, by law. So, I mean, there's explicit discrimination. There's laws that are facially neutral, but have a disparate impact. There are practices that are engaged in with discriminatory intent, even though you can't prove it. So there's there's a big system out there that I think, tilts society in in particular ways. So, you know, 1967, loving against Virginia, the Supreme Court says states can't ban interracial marriage. And that's part of the second reconstruction, what people call the second reconstruction, the Warren courts, the civil rights movement. And certainly it moves us towards equality. But I absolutely wouldn't say, and now we're done. I think there's a temptation always to say, oh, we're done, right? Now we can just move forward. Everyone's equal. Um, I think that's a bad idea. And I also think that equality movements tend to inspire backlashes. And you see that with the civil rights movement, the Warren court and the second reconstruction, because that's sort of what gives rise to the Reagan revolution, where we get this idea that we want to go back to the original understanding. So Reagan's justice department is really the driving force behind originalism in the 1980s, which really sort of comes onto the scene then. And they want, I think, very consciously to go back to 1776 and 1787 because they're less interested in reconstruction.
1: Well, you know, you and you you talk about national stories that um, unite the nation. I mean, and so much of the stories, you know, it's it that there many of them have knit what we would say is the very very fabric of this country, right? And but there are also fundamental flaws, right, in 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 a lot of stories in the way they're. Told and the way they're transcribed and recorded. So, I was just wondering if you would kind of comment a little bit about that, you know, because I mean, obviously, so much of your book is about our national story.
2: Yeah, so the beginning of the book is about national stories and the role that they play in the creation of a national identity. And fundamentally, what I think a story, a national story, is supposed to do is give us a sense of who we are as a people and what we value and where we come from. And who the heroes of our history are, and who the villains are, and really, it's supposed to bring us together in the name of shared ideals, so that we will rise to the challenge when we're called on to make sacrifices. Um, you know, so it, it's important that the story show us a nation that we can believe in, a nation that's worth fighting for, a nation that we can love, um, and. We had a story that did this. I think it didn't ever do it as well as most people thought. Um, but I think that that story is failing now. So, you know, in the same way that individuals make sense of their own lives by sort of telling stories and by understanding them in narrative form, I think nations do that, too. And when the national story stops working, it's sort of like a person having an identity crisis. You know, you ask, who am I? What do I care about? How do I go forward? And I do feel that that's where we are now as a nation. We're struggling with different, maybe irreconcilable conceptions of America.
1: Well, and also, you know, the old saying is everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts, right? And I think it's very hard when people in a lot of their minds are rewriting history. They're coming up with their own facts. And it's really hard to govern a nation sometimes when people can't even agree on on basic facts.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, that sort of separation between different political realities, um, is something that's very difficult to deal with, I think. And if we had a story that everyone could accept, that might be one way to bridge the divide. And, you know, in my sort of wildest dreams, I think maybe the better story that I have to offer could do that. Um, what I know is we need to think about the story that we're telling because it's not, it's not working anymore. Um, and people are trying to sort of desperately prop it up by suppressing alternate views, and that's what the anti-CRT bills around the country are trying to do. That's what um, the state legislatures banning books in public schools are trying to do. I think they're trying to suppress dissent with respect to this standard story, um, and that I think is well, the wrong way to go about also it. Also argue
1: on the liberal side that that's what big tech is trying to do, also. <laughs> Sure. You know, so yeah. So I mean, it's to be fair, it's on, it comes on both sides. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So well, let's get back to you know you, you point to the, get- the Gettysburg Address, marking sort of the beginning of um, you know the Recon- the Reconstructionist phase of America, and I guess maybe you talk about it a little bit in your mind and for our viewers, you know, what did the Reconstructionist Congress understand about the nation's failures? when they said to build build something new and Lincoln who who many people and I'm one of those people consider our, probably our greatest president. Um, you know, what were some of the things that he really got or part of his leadership as he attempted to lead the country out of this?
2: Well, there's sort of a short answer and a long answer to that. And the short answer is slavery, right? Slavery is the big issue. Slavery is the big flaw in founding America. Um, at the time of the Declaration of Independence, every state recognizes slavery. So when you see the Betsy Ross flag, 13 stars in a circle, every one of those stars is a slave holding state.
1: Though, so as you mentioned in your book, only 34 of the 47 signers of the Declaration were, were abolitionists or owned slaves. Only 34. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm saying, I mean, that's still, I mean, you <laughs> think two, when, how many of, 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 the, of what the slavery anti-slavery movement was in that, to me, that number seems low. Um, Patrick Henry, who said, give me liberty or give me death, owned 65 slaves. So.
2: Yes. Um, but so compare that to the Reconstruction yeah. Congress. Right? They did not yeah. own slaves. None of them. Right. Um, so the short answer is, is slavery. Um, and you know, the difference there between Reconstruction and Lincoln and, you know, say, Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence is the Civil War is a war against slavery. It doesn't actually start out that way, but it, it ends that way, a war against slavery. The Revolution is not. Um, and we can talk about the history more, it's sort of complicated, but the Revolution is not a war against slavery, certainly. So the rejection of slavery is sort of the central core of why Reconstruction and the Civil War are better than the Revolution. Um, but the longer version is if you look at founding documents, and the Declaration of Independence is one, the 1787 Constitution is another, and compare them to Reconstruction documents, by which I mean basically the Gettysburg Address, maybe the Emancipation Proclamation, and then the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, you get two very different, pretty comprehensive political philosophies and ideologies. And founding America is what I call exclusive individualist. So the idea is our political community is closed. There are people who are outsiders, but they're dangerous and they're different and they can't become insiders. In the Declaration of Independence, these are the Hessian mercenaries that King George is sending to kill us. They're the enslaved people who we're afraid are going to rise up against us. And the Native Americans, whom the Declaration calls merciless savages. So threatening outsiders. And then also this idea of individualism, which is to say the government is there to protect the natural rights of the people who create it. And the government shouldn't interfere with individual rights in order to benefit other people. So it shouldn't redistribute, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and then if you look at Reconstruction, Gettysburg Address, Civil War, the philosophy there is what I call inclusive equality. So the idea is people who are outsiders can become insiders. The clearest example of this is birthright citizenship which is there primarily to make the formerly enslaved citizens of the United States, which the Supreme Court had earlier said under the 1787 Constitution, they can never be. Mm -hmm. So we amend the Constitution to bring outsiders in. We're inclusive. And then also we believe in equality. So Lincoln says over and over again, equality is the goal of government. That's what we're striving towards. It's good for the government to act to promote equality even if that means you interfere with the rights of insiders. And the clearest example of this is abolition, right? Because there you're interfering with the rights of insiders, their property rights, their rights to own other people. And you're doing it for the benefit of outsiders. That's the sort of thing that Founding America thinks is terrible. And the Supreme Court actually says you can't do. That's another part of the Dred Scott decision. Um, but this is what Reconstruction commits itself to doing redistribution in the name of justice and in the name of equality.
1: We talk a little bit, because a lot of the pro-slavery people like the John C. Calhouns, you know, they would always talk about how, well, you know, the Declaration says equal liberty for all, but that's really an illusion. You know, I love to, you know, get your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, well, so one of the things that I found most surprising as I was reading through all of the historical materials was I think John C. Calhoun is right. I think Jefferson Davis is right in his farewell address. Mm -hmm. I think that their characterization of founding America and the 1787 constitution and the declaration of independence makes a lot more sense. If you think about it historically than what Abraham Lincoln was saying. Um, Now, some people think, you know, how, how can you say that? You're on the side of the South. Now you're on the side of the slave owners and they're evil. So they must be wrong. But It's only a problem to say, you know, these evil people are right in their evil views if the thing that they're characterizing is still us. So if you think that we're still connected to founding America, if you think our Constitution is still the 1787 Constitution, then it's a very big problem if those things are flawed or evil because their flaws echo down to us. But if, and this is my my main argument, you think there's a really big, sharp break with the Civil War and Reconstruction, so that we're not founding America, we're really the people who destroyed founding America, then you can say, yeah, you know, founding America is a lot like Confederate America. John C. Calhoun was right, the Declaration of Independence, the theory there really kind of goes against abolition. And, you know, Jefferson Davis was right. The 1787 Constitution recognizes slavery and protects it. In several ways. Um, All of that is okay, Right. I can say that and not feel bad about myself because my constitution is the 1868 constitution. Mm -hmm. My statement of values is the Gettysburg Address, not the Declaration of Independence. So uh,
1: one of the things to me that is probably the greatest setback for black rights in America was the so-called compromise of 1887. And that was when, in 1876, you know, it's happened twice in the last 20 years, but only three times in the first 200 years did the winner of the uh, popular vote not win the electoral vote or the the Electoral College. And so Samuel Tilden had actually won the popular vote, but um, Rutherford B. Hayes had won the Electoral College, so the compromise was that the um, Democrats agreed to pull out all the soldiers from the South, but the Republicans then... Um, said, well, they, they would promise to obviously continue their, uh, to uphold civil rights and political rights for blacks, and obviously that did not happen. And then, you know, that led obviously to all a lot of stuff that happened in the early 20th century. I'd love you just to talk a little bit about that, and, because that to me was one of the great American tragedies in terms of rights.
2: Absolutely. I think, I think that is the great American tragedy. Um, you know, I think that that's the original sin of Reconstruction America. So, you know, if you think of America as founding America, you'd say that the original sin is slavery. And then I think it's pretty easy to say, look, that's in the past. I never enslaved anyone. You know, I've moved on. If you say the compromise of 1877 is America's original sin because we abandoned reconstruction, right? We gave up on it um, and we allowed white supremacist paramilitaries to take back power by force in the South. Um, then you get a different perspective on it because it's like we had this multiracial democracy that was kind of working. Reconstruction did great things in the South, but we didn't have the will to stand up basically against other white people. So white America was unwilling to continue conflict within the group of whites in the name of racial justice. And we chose unity instead. We chose unity over justice. And that's what We did wrong in the past, and that's what we should worry about doing wrong in the future. And you can actually see this if you go farther back. So repeatedly through American history, there's a feeling that we need to get people together. We need unity. The Declaration of Independence is a moment like that. The drafting of the Constitution is a moment like that. And you might think, if you've sort of absorbed what I call the standard story growing up, that what brings Americans together is equality, Right? We come together in the name of the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. That's actually almost exactly backwards. What brings Americans together or what brings white Americans together or enough white Americans to take control and do the things that need to be done is really more often inequality. So it's either sort of setting aside questions of racial justice or it's actually foregrounding racial hierarchy, which is what happens in 1877.
1: A lot of your book talks about racism in this country and obviously there's, if you look at sorry, if you look at today, uh, police brutality and violence against Black Americans dominates the headlines. You know, economic inequality tends to be uh, still worse than ever, and that's it was exacerbated during the, the pandemic. And I, I've always said, inequality, you know, it's it's some as so many people say, is the great driver of of populism, right? I mean, as bad as Donald Trump is, whatever you think of him, he's the symptom. He's 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 not the problem. I mean, populism is what gave us Donald Trump, and so I guess the question is, you know, there's these so-called voter integrity laws that are being passed around, around the country and a lot of those people view are, are very um, restricted. So I guess if institutional racism is the number one story or one of the top stories that needs to be re- retold in this country, you know, what are some of the steps that you would like to see taken that can actually change the story? And, and you know, particularly when uh, one of our political parties is being accused of, you know, coddling the other side.
2: Well, so the question of, you know, how we go forward is a difficult one. Um, I have sort of answers on two different tracks and the sort of ideological narratives track is that I do want us to identify more with Reconstruction and less with the founding. And I want us to think of um, Abraham Lincoln and the Reconstruction Congress as more the founders of our country. And I think that that's better in a bunch of ways, um, maybe the easiest one is the one that I was alluding to before, which is the failure of Reconstruction America is an act of omission. So it's not enslaving people. It's not standing up for what's right. And I feel like if we think that's the flaw that we need to be looking for um, and the flaw that we need to avoid repeating, then that's going to help us going forward um, in more concrete terms. What I suggest in the book is if you look at most of the 20th century, um, there's a lot of government spending. And there's the GI Bill, and there's the New Deal, um, and there's mortgage support. And all of that, you know, pretty much all of that, if you look at it, is racially skewed. So there are programs that explicitly exclude black people. There are programs that are administered in an unequal way. There are programs that are just defined to exclude categories of jobs that are predominantly held by blacks. So we've had a racially disproportionate expenditure of government funds to a massive degree for, you know, 80, 100 years. Um, You know, and this is after slavery. This is after Reconstruction. This is after the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s. it doesn't seem too much to ask to maybe try to target some government spending in the opposite direction. So you can do that without using explicit racial classifications. You can, you know, you can do it both ways. Um, and we've been doing it in a way that directs funds away from minority communities. I think it would be nice to do it in a way that directs funds to them.
1: Well, and I think, you know, if you look at, again, going back to inequality, the last time we had this level of inequality in the country was in the Gilded Age of the 20s. And then we took steps. You know, we, we, uh, passed banking regulations. We created Social Security. We created an income tax. Whereas I think you can argue now that the policies we are, we have passed, uh, we are passing in our political system is exacerbating that inequality. And if you look back, even the war against poverty, many people would say it has been a failure. If you look at the amount of money that we've spent and um, some of the progress that should have have been made, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, so I'm I'm a fan of the progressive era, right? So, I mean, that's the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt. Um, That's the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th Amendments. Um, The progressives do great things. So, like, federal income tax, I think that's probably good. Um, Giving women the right to vote, that's good. 17th Amendment actually has some unintended consequences. 18th Amendment, probably a bad idea. But generally speaking, the ideals of the progressives um, and this idea of fairness and a square deal, that's TR's label for it, um, I think is something that we should be paying attention to um, because we do have enormous inequality. And I think that makes it an unfair playing field
1: yeah well and you know, that's a really good segue to my next questions and you know instead of um, reparations for the black community you you target uh investment rather than admitting wrongdoings via reparation which are, makes a lot of white americans feel that they've been wrongly accused that the solution is to make systematic um economic have a systematic response to a to their problem and You know, what do you see in your mind? What would be the uh, ideal program or the ideal way to to uh, make
2: that a reality? Right. So I didn't say reparations before, because I think reparations is a word that Mm. some people react negatively to. And I think that's because people understand it as payments from wrongdoers to the people that they have wronged. And then they're like, why are you accusing me? I didn't do anything. Um, And they and they're blaming me
1: for something that, you know, my great, 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 great grandfather did.
2: Right. Or didn't. You know, my family came here in the 1970s and not my family, but they (laughs) would say that. Right. Um, So I think it would be good not to think about it that way. Um, I think we should think about it as trying to promote equality because equality is a good value. And, you know, if you're asked to contribute money to the victims of a natural disaster, You're not saying I didn't cause the hurricane. Why are you blaming me for that? Right. You're like, hey, you know what? It's good to make sacrifices to lift up the less fortunate. Um, And if we understand it that way, as part of this egalitarian, communitarian ethos, then I think it's much easier to say, you know, we're a society that lifts up everyone, even those we didn't push down.
1: Yeah. And uh, certainly most people I've talked to, um, you know, who they don't care so much about reparations. They just want, you know, better schools for their kids. They just want lower crime in their communities. They just want more economic opportunity. You know, they just want the same things that everyone else wants. Right. Yeah. And so I guess maybe you can be a little more specific in terms of what would you see? Do you see like putting in economic opportunity zones in lower income communities or what are some of the things today that you think could really address this, this problem?
2: Well, economic opportunity zones is a good idea. Um, I think supporting home ownership is a good idea. Um, Raising the minimum wage probably would help. Um, I mean, so there are think tanks out there that have crunched the numbers on different proposals and looked at the racial impact of it, which is something that I'm interested in. I think we should look at that. Um, And I think they, they found that home ownership support was one of the most effective ones. Um, I don't know exactly the details. I'm not an economist. Um, so I'm sort of saying we should look at the numbers there. You know, I'm not telling you that I have the numbers. Um,
1: you say that there's a different, better way to, to understand America, you know, one that is more honest, inspiring and, and, uh, can bring us together. And, I guess, you know, as someone who follows politics so closely, I'm so dismayed by the way how politically polarized things are. You know, it seems like Congress these days can barely agree on what day it is. Right. So I guess. Um, how do you realistically tell a new story that can bring us together when each side thinks the other side is, you know, not only wrong, but a threat to the country?
2: Yeah. So you can't tell a story that makes people on one side think of people on the other side as their friends necessarily but if you can tell a story that both sides are attracted to then you can maybe bring them together and that's sort of what the national story is supposed to do it's supposed to bring us together and allow us to overcome our divisions and understand that we're all Americans and we have these common values and What I say in the book is thinking about American identity as rooted in the Civil War and Reconstruction is more honest, more inspiring, and can bring us together better. So it's more honest because this idea that the Declaration is about universal human equality and is inconsistent with slavery just doesn't make very much sense if you think about it historically. Why would the slave-owning colonists start the Declaration of Independence with a principle that says they are oppressors, right? All men are created equal. It's the first self-evident truth. If that is inconsistent with slavery, they have started out the Declaration of Independence by saying we're the bad guys, which obviously they wouldn't do. There's a lot more to say about why this is true, but it's just not very convincing to suppose that our American ideals of equality are there in the Declaration of Independence. Obviously, they're there in the Gettysburg Address. They're there in the Reconstruction Amendments. So it's more honest. It's also more inspiring because as we tell the standard story and we're like Thomas Jefferson, that great man stated our ideals. We also have to acknowledge he enslaved his own children, right? And that's a little bit of a stumbling block. But if you're like John Bingham, Charles Sumner, Thaddeus Stevens, those are our heroes. You don't have this terrible baggage that you need to deal with somehow. And it's true that no story is going to appeal to everyone, right? Some people are like, I can't see myself in that story. But the people who have difficulty seeing themselves in the standard story are the people who are uncomfortable with enslaving your own children, right? The people who want to say, I don't think that I can make the compromises with slavery that founding America demands. The people who are uncomfortable with the Reconstruction-centered story are the people who identify with the Confederates, right? They're the traitors who fought a war to protect slavery. So if the choice is, do we marginalize the people who are uncomfortable with slavery or the people who are uncomfortable with the end of slavery, much better to marginalize the traitors, I think. Um, So more accurate, more inspiring, can bring us together better. This is sort of related um, in terms of who it marginalizes. But the other thing is that the standard story as i've described it also tells us the sort of story of inevitable progress right america starts out with these ideals they're more f- more fully realized over time maybe there are some stumbling blocks but basically all you have to do is wait and america works itself pure and that actually i think is is bad for a number of reasons but one is that it it can paralyze people of goodwill because they think you know don't make a fuss just be civil everything will get better. And it doesn't. And again, Martin Luther King is a really good example of someone who came to realize this over time and you know, started out trying to be non-threatening and fostering unity and then realized that unity often leads to stagnation. And when white Americans come together in the name of these shared ideals, basically they tend to leave black Americans behind.
1: I guess I was just thinking in terms of, you know, because so many... Uh, Americans, and historically what you say is correct, but they're, I guess they're kind of looking for a, you know, a modern version of the story or something that really applies today um, that could, you know, something that they can bite on, bite into, if you will. And so, you know, I just wonder
2: if you have any, any, any theories on that or any, any ideas? A modern version of the story. Well, you know, I mean, what we need is a musical. Mm -hmm. We need a musical about Reconstruction. We need, like, the John Bingham musical. But, you know, the, here's the great thing about Reconstruction as compared to the founding. So Hamilton, right, novelty casting, it's got all of these people of color playing the white founding fathers. So there are lots of black people on stage, but there aren't a lot of black characters in Hamilton. You've got Sally Hemings showing up just sort of briefly once. Um, if you do Reconstruction, you've got lots of black heroes you know, you've got black senators, you've got black members of Congress, you've got the black soldiers of the Union Army. Um, so that would be a better story, I think. I would love to see that musical. I think you could do a lot more with that than you do with Hamilton.
1: In addition to being the, the great, great grandson of Teddy Roosevelt and related to... Uh... Franklin Roosevelt and I can relate as a fifth generation Rockefeller. We have some some lineage, but but you know, FDR obviously his greatest accomplishment was the New Deal, which came in during the Great Depression and obviously helped bring us bring us America out of it. And um, you know, it, in some ways, do you think that this new story might have to be uh, some kind of New Deal in America? And 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 is, I guess having um, having said that, uh, is there what circumstances would it take to, to kind of make that happen t- today, you know?
2: Well, so it's an interesting question. You know, again, like what is the path forward? Um, and what I've come to think looking at these different episodes in American history is that basically there are two things that people do. And you see this over and over again, like you work within the system As long as you believe that the system can deliver what you need. And if you conclude that it can't, then you break it and you make something new. And I always used to, for I taught constitutional law at Penn for 20 years now. And for 19 years, I would end my class by saying to the students, like, the Constitution ends up reflecting the values of the American people, because it sort of does, if you look at what the Supreme Court does, it's ultimately kind of responsive to popular opinion. And, you know, the Constitution is your responsibility, and go out there and take good care of it. Um, But last year, for the first time, I was like, you know what, maybe the Constitution that we have is not adequate to the task. Um, And I think in some ways that's probably true, because... The Constitution that was drafted in 1787 wasn't really supposed to work with political parties at all. The framers didn't foresee that. Some of the changes that are made in Reconstruction are adaptations for the party system. Um, and the Constitution ends up working reasonably well with two parties as long as there's sort of elite consensus. So you had Supreme Court justices appointed by Republicans and Democrats, but they tended to be pretty similar. A lot of the time, because they were representing sort of an elite legal view. Now we've got intense polarization. So two intensely polarized political parties is a test that our Constitution has never faced before. And I think it's not performing very well. And part of the problem is the Supreme Court, uh, because the Supreme Court is really not meant to be sort of a trophy fought over by rival political parties. That's not the way that the system was designed. So it's possible that we need significant constitutional change. Um, I think some of that can be done without amending the Constitution. You know, I think there are ways in which we could make it more democratic, which I generally would favor.
1: What would be a couple of examples of that, do you think?
2: So one thing we could do is do the National Popular Vote Compact, which is basically an end run around the Electoral College. If you get enough states to pledge to award all of their electors to the winner of the national popular vote, then they'll do that. And the national popular vote winner wins the presidency. We don't need to worry about popular vote losers. Well, and
1: by the way, that movement is going on. And I think they're up to about 200 electoral votes. If yeah, is that close. right? Is that about where we are?
2: Mm-hmm. They're getting close. So that's the presidency. Um, for Congress, if we had a Supreme Court that would invalidate partisan gerrymanders, that would help a lot with the House of Representatives. So we got to fix the Supreme Court for that to happen. Um, Or, you know, you can try to do it at the state level, maybe, or the federal level. We can try to get legislative reform there. I mean, ultimately, I think a Supreme Court that's willing to say the partisan gerrymander is unconstitutional is the best path. The Senate, we need to have more states. We need to have small blue states because the real problem in the Senate now, one is it's just wildly malapportioned. In California, I don't need to tell you this. Um, Right. You have as many senators as Wyoming, which doesn't make any sense.
1: But well, wasn't that part of the grand compromise, though? You know, well, it was sure is that though, yeah? Because yeah. the House was going to be based on population, and every Senate was going to have two. Every Senate
2: yes. state was going to have two yeah, senators. So, that, so now it's easy to look back, but at the time it made well. At sense. the time it made more sense because the population disparities weren't so great. But the other thing is, they didn't have political polarization that mapped onto large state, small state in the same way that we do now, because we've got urban, rural. Polarization, and so the small rural states tend to tilt in one direction. So the malapportionment of the Senate is favoring; it's got a partisan lean to it. And we can get rid of that if we admit small blue states. Right then, the Senate is still malapportioned, but it's not partisan anymore. And the so part you
1: say small blue states. Are you talking about Puerto Rico and D.C. as the first two? Yes. Yes. I think you might catch a pushback on that. And I would also say, you oh, know, D.C. Rec- really deserves to be a state. Come on. Actually, I, that's where we disagree. I think D.C., because so much lobbying goes on there, was specific, specifically designed not to be a state. You don't want where the, the seat of government is taking place to be a state.
2: Well, we and, we could also break up California.
1: Um, and, you know, and also, I would point as recently as 2011, North Dakota had two Democratic senators. So this— Yes. The main argument people are saying now is, okay. well, because of these reds, all these small states have gone red. It gives the Republicans an outsized weight in the Electoral College. And now you have it is true that 11 percent of the population can block legislation based on the filibuster. So I agree with you that that's an issue. But I think it's just as much Democrats losing touch with rural voters and discarding many of them that has led to this phenomenon.
2: Well, that may be. I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I would say about that. I mean, what I what I would say is structurally, it's bad to have malapportionment with a partisan tilt. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's one thing to say the majority shouldn't be able to do anything it wants. It's another thing to say. So 11 percent can block legislation. I think 18 percent can control the Senate. 18 percent can exert majority control over the Senate. And that's not the way the country should work.
1: No, and, and I also think the filibuster—it's not in the Constitution. You know, as recently as the '70s, they they lowered it from you know 67 senators to 70. I think the very least they could lower it to 55, and that would be because I think you could get five senators to come on board, and that and that would be something that would be done. But let's let's talk about the 14th Amendment because that's something that, that you've mentioned, and uh, yeah, you know, and you talk about it in a, in a water as a watershed moment in our nation's history and the Supreme Court's role in interpreting the Constitution in cases in integrating schools, interracial marriage, Miranda, the right to counsel, right to abortion, same-sex marriage, all this stuff. And I guess you mentioned the Supreme Court, but maybe talk a little more about it. You know, as a constitutional lawyer, uh, you know, obviously the Roe versus Wade has been overturned and there's, you know, they, they violate, they invalidate a, a New York City gun law, things like that. But how do you see it, these rulings um, Affecting other landmark cases, and do you buy into the, to the a fear, a lot of the fear on the left that you know, it's today it's abortion, tomorrow it's same-sex marriage, next week it's contraception, you know, how far do you think the, the court's going to go, and how concerned are you about it?
2: Um, I'm certainly concerned about it. So, if you read the Dobbs opinion, um, Alito says this is just about abortion, mm-hmm. but. He announces a methodology that supposedly, you know, we think the court is going to apply consistently. And the methodology is if you're asserting a right that's not in the text of the Constitution, we will define that right narrowly and we will look and see if it has historically been recognized. And if you apply that methodology, there is no same-sex marriage, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Obergefell is wrong. There is no right to contraception. Griswold is wrong. Now, it doesn't mean that they're going to be overturned. Because there's also the question of stare decisis, right, which every Supreme Court nominee really believes in until the time comes to rule on the case. And then they're like, well, you know, look at these factors. I'll balance them and maybe I'm not going to uphold this precedent. So stare decisis means as much as a justice wants it to mean in a particular case. And the methodology of Dobbs says those decisions are wrong. Um, If you get justices who want to overrule them, if you get a political movement that's calling for it, and there are people calling for it, um, it's maybe not a majority of the Republican Party at this point, but there are people who are calling to revisit same-sex marriage. Um, Yeah, that could totally happen. So term limits for the Supreme Court, actually. I I didn't get to how you fix the judiciary, but the answer, how you fix the judiciary is term limits for the Supreme Court.
1: Actually agree on that because i 'm opposed to term limits overall, but I think you should definitely have term limits for the Supreme Court because the pulse, the process has gotten so so broken you know i mean that was that used to be one of the few bipartisan things left is that uh, you could, if if you were a Republican president, you could cons- report, uh, appoint a conservative justice. And if you were a Democratic president, you could appoint a liberal one. But, you know, Mitch McConnell has broken that and it's become so politicized now. But anyway, well, uh, you're such a popular fellow. We have a lot of questions here. So why don't we start to get to a couple of questions from the audience here? And so uh, the first question is, aren't the wealthy the ones who are able to create wealth? Politicians uh, can't. And uh, workers can't. Uh, I know this is true. Um, <laughs> well, that's, uh,
2: that's,
1: uh, I, I think that's more of a statement than a question.
2: But... Well, do the wealthy create wealth? I mean, money makes money. That's yeah. true. Some people might say that workers create wealth. And then the question is really who gets the surplus value. Yeah. Um, and the wealthy become wealthy by extracting the surplus value, which if you distributed it to workers, you would have lots of people who are not as wealthy, but more of them. Um, So I don't know where I come down on that. I mean, I do believe there are people who are innovators and they have great ideas and they can turn those ideas into lots of money, but they couldn't do that without the infrastructure that society provides. So, you know, I think people should be rewarded for good ideas, but they shouldn't necessarily be able to keep all of their profits.
1: Well, and that's why I think, you know, irrespective of one thinks about public sector unions, and we'll leave that conversation for another day. Private sector unions I think are very good, right, because you have this mutually assured destruction. You know, if the workers quit, the companies go out of business and if the workers are fired, uh, you know, everybody loses. And I think that that, the unions were also a great path to... uh, to, to middle class in this country. And I think that's why it's sad to see the uh, union membership down to about 7% now.
2: Yeah, well, hollowing out the middle class is not a good strategy for anyone because then no one can buy your iPhones. <laughs>
1: yeah. and, and around in this part of the world, that's, that, that's very important. <laughs> All right, here's another question. How do you feel about uh, the amendment process being so stalled? The Equal Rights Amendment would solve... Uh, a lot of the problems, and yet it has not happened. And again, obviously the constitutional amendment, right? You need, what, 37 states and three-quarters of Congress. So uh, to put it mildly, that's not exactly a
2: very easy lift
1: in today's political environment.
2: Yeah, so amendment is very hard, um, and I think it's probably too hard. And one of the consequences of it being so hard is that we've gotten a lot of constitutional change through Supreme Court interpretation of vague constitutional provisions. And that's one of the reasons why the Supreme Court plays such a large role in our politics. Mm. And probably it would be better if it didn't. And if it were easier to amend the Constitution, that wouldn't happen. Because, you know, the way things are now, a political movement can get constitutional change, but they have to... Capture the presidency and enough of the Senate to get the president's picks confirmed. And then the president has to put people on the Supreme Court who share this constitutional vision. And when does the president get to do that? Sometimes it's unpredictable. Right. Maybe you get zero appointments in a four year term. Um, Jimmy Carter Carter had zero. Yeah. And Richard Nixon had four in five years, right? I mean, Right. Exactly. So that's, that's the real justification for term limits, I think, is it so you don't get this arbitrary, unbalanced influence that presidents have?
1: Yeah. So here's, and you had mentioned this in your book, we weren't talking about, it, but comment on, on how the 1619 project, you know, that's mm-hmm. been very controversial. And um, how does it fit in and complement your viewpoint?
2: Yeah, so the 1619 Project, first off, I'm a big fan of the 1619 Project. I think it's great. I think it does a really good job of showing something that became very clear to me over the years teaching constitutional law, which is that if you're looking at America and you're like, why do we do things this way? This is weird. Most other countries don't. Like most other industrialized democracies handle this issue very differently. Like nine times out of 10, the answer is going to be race. We do it differently for reasons that if you look at them historically, it goes back to race. It goes back to slavery. In constitutional law, you see that like all the time. The 1619 Project does a really good job, I think, of showing that. The other thing that I want to say about the 1619 Project is it's not unpatriotic. It's not anti-American. I mean, if you read the introductory essay by Nicole Hannah-Jones, it's about how she used to look at the American flag and feel like it wasn't her flag. But now she does. You know, now she believes in the country. Um, What the 1619 Project is doing, really is actually telling a version of the standard story. That's the really interesting thing about it. And that's why I think that I'm actually in some ways more radical mm-hmm. than 1619. Because they're saying like our ideals were there in the Declaration of Independence. Nicole Hannah-Jones says our ideals were false when they were written. But they were written in 1776. Right? All men are created equal meant then what it means now, she's saying. like, And then we fought to make them true over the years. And what I'm saying is... Our ideals were not written in 1776. When Thomas Jefferson said all men are created equal, what he meant was there's no divine right of kings. If you look at the argument of the Declaration and you look at the Enlightenment political philosophy that is embodied in it, that's what he means. In a world without government, without laws, no one has any duty to obey anyone else. That's what it means. And then the Declaration goes on to talk about where legitimate political authority comes from and when it ceases to be legitimate and when it can be rejected. Um, He's not talking about the government treating people equally or the government respecting people equally. He's talking about something very different. So um, in that sense, I think 1619 is sort of the progressive version of the standard story. So the standard story has progressive and liberal and progressive and conservative versions. Um, But it's still part of that idea of an American identity that's born in 1776.
1: Well, I think it's really good because whether or not you agree with it, I think it's very provocative and it gets, you know, gets people talking about the issue and thinking about it. So I think that's really good. So here's another question from our audience. How do we return to the conditions of post reconstruction when so many originalists uh, are in positions, positions of power?
2: Well, so the interesting thing about originalism is that it tells you to look at what people thought when particular constitutional provisions were ratified. And that often makes the court look at 1787 or 1791. But for most of the important issues, you should be looking at 1868 because that's when the 14th amendment was ratified. And one of the things that you sort of touched on earlier when you were talking about big, important Supreme court cases, um, One of the reasons that I say we're Reconstruction America and not founding America is that virtually without exception, our big, important, groundbreaking, celebrated Supreme Court cases are 14th Amendment cases. They're not the 1787 or 1791 Constitution. They're the 1868 Constitution. And if you go back to 1787, they come out differently. So Brown v. Board of Education, of course, integrating schools, loving against Virginia— striking down bans on interracial marriage, all of the criminal procedure cases, Miranda v. Arizona, the right to remain silent, Gideon v. Wainwright, the right to counsel. um, All of those are 14th Amendment cases. So the 14th Amendment is really the heart of our Constitution and the heart of the Constitution as we experience it. It's the source of the rights that we as Americans hold dear in these celebrated cases. Um, That still doesn't get you all the way to where you want to go, probably, because some of the reconstruction attitudes are pretty bad with respect to women in particular. So if you're looking for sex equality, you don't do so well looking at reconstruction. Um, What you have to do there (laughs) is say, you know, when the drafters of the Equal Protection Clause decided that they were prohibiting unjustified discrimination, which is basically how the Supreme Court has explained it and, and has since know relatively early after ratification they understood that people in the future would have a different view of what was unjustified or oppressive or stigmatizing and they wanted that future understanding to control so they were in a sense delegating application of this provision to the future um, they wanted maybe the will of a national majority to prevail against a minority of states who were discriminating against a group of people in a way that majorities at the state level thought was okay, but a national majority didn't approve of. And I don't think that's an unreasonable way to interpret an amendment enacted in the wake of the Civil War. I think that actually makes a lot of sense in terms of what they were trying to do. And if you think that, then you can be an originalist and you can say, this is how people at the time understood this amendment. This is how they thought it would be applied. Um, And you can still get changing outcomes over time.
1: Um, Well, here's a question more relevant today. What do you think about abortion rights and the argument made by the Supreme Court recently that it was not a part of the nation's character?
2: Well, did they say I, I... I'm not familiar with the passage. If they say it's not a part of the nation, I'm not character. familiar with
1: the passage. Either. I mean,
2: they say it's not a part of the nation's history and it's actually not so clear that that's true. I think so. There's scholarship that looks at, and they should be looking at 1868, but there's scholarship that looks at sort of founding America and abortion practices and suggests that actually it was um, widespread and much less regulated than the court suggests. So people can always argue about the history. The thing about abortion Uh, The way that I think about it is. I think it's a difficult argument to make if you're just saying this is protected liberty, because I believe there are important interests on both sides. And ordinarily, I don't think judges should tell legislatures how to balance important interests unless you've got relatively explicit direction from the Constitution, Unless you think there's a reason not to trust the legislature, right? Unless you think maybe the legislature is not going to weigh the interests of all affected people equally. So for me, the stronger argument for abortion rights has always been an equality argument. It's been an argument that says we think that legislatures that adopt abortion restrictions are not counting women's liberty equally. And. That's sort of speculation, I guess. But if you want to test that intuition, right, the direct test is, well, what do you think would happen if men could get pregnant? But again, you have to sort of imagine that. The more tangible way to test it, though, is to say, yeah, you know, life and liberty, those are both important values. And sometimes we have to balance them against each other and trade them off. Let's look at how that balancing comes out when it's the liberty of everyone. So what sort of bodily intrusions do we require people to suffer in order to preserve life? Do we have mandatory blood donation? Do we have mandatory postmortem organ donation? Do we even have an opt-out rather than an opt-in postmortem organ donation regime? And the answer is we have none of those things. If you look at the landscape, the legal landscape of America, when life and liberty come into conflict, we choose liberty almost all the time. Um, And so it does seem to me pretty plausible to say something strange is going on because when it's only women's liberty at stake, that's when life becomes so important.
1: Yeah, and it's an interesting thing. And a lot of these states, which which really surprises me because it shows you how, how far right things have gone, there never used to be an issue with the exception for rape or incest. And now you see a lot of states doing that. And some people even could say that uh, you know forcing a woman to carry a child is a violation of the 13th Amendment, that it's an in involuntary servitude.
2: Forced labor. Yeah,
1: yeah. So here's another question. Do you know very... Do you know, very different, interesting, interesting questions from the audience today. Do you know very different cultures are not compatible and none want to be dominated by another?
2: Um, I think it's true that no one wants to be dominated by another. Um, You know, Abraham Lincoln said that, I think. He said, as I would not be a slave, I would not be a master. So domination is probably not a good relationship to have between groups in your country um fully agree with that right we should not have a society that's based on domination um, different cultures are what did the question say incompatible yeah um, i don't know about that i mean the american aspiration has always sort of been that we're a melting pot um which suggests i guess that the different cultures blend into each other and i'm not actually sure that we should understand it that way um i believe you can have cultural diversity persist without incompatibility um it's a test for society and something that different societies are struggling with i guess um, i guess i'm an optimist like you because i i don't believe that different cultures are generally incompatible
1: well and i was going to uh You know, I was also going to ask you about uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, you know, with life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. And the Constitution further defines this liberty uh, and equality as fundamental values of our society. But in the book, you know, you explain that the institution of slavery was actually strengthened by the Revolutionary War. And the Constitution was was largely uh, indifferent to that. I think that's a really you know, one of the most important points, and you've touched on it a little more. But if, if you could just maybe explain a little more about how you how you um, frame this dichotomy, I think it would be helpful.
2: Yeah, sure. So, the Declaration of Independence tells us that governments are created to protect the natural rights of the people who form them. Um, that's sort of what the preamble says, um, you know, in the state of nature, people are equal. They have these natural rights, but the rights are not secure. And the danger there basically is other people. So you're in the state of nature, which means an imaginary world with no government and no laws. You can do more or less whatever you want, right? You have your right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. But someone else might come along and murder you, right? And then you don't have your right to life anymore. So your rights are not secure. Um, we form governments basically as mutual self-defense pacts. And we consent to the authority of those governments and those governments protect us from other individuals. So that's the theory of the declaration. Now, one thing you need to do um, if you're talking about colonial America is ask how that interacts with slavery. And for me, the answer is pretty straightforward, which is governments are supposed to respect and protect the rights of the people who form them. That's the theory of the declaration. What does the government have to do to outsiders, people who haven't, Come together to form the government, people who aren't members of the political community? Totally different question. Um, I'm not saying that the Declaration supports slavery, although the Supreme Court ends up accepting that argument on the theory that you can't interfere with the right of people in the political community to possess property. Um, but I do think that the Declaration doesn't condemn slavery, because once you're talking about outsiders, the theory of the Declaration has no direct relevance, and you've got to a- answer these questions about basically whether slavery is justified, which is an easy question for us now, but was debated then, and the Declaration just doesn't say anything about it. Um, so that's why I think the Declaration isn't necessarily inconsistent with slavery. And then you've got the question, well, how does the Constitution relate to this? And the answer there is the 1787 Constitution, or 1791 if you include the Bill of Rights, really says nothing about the natural rights of individuals. There's no provision in the original Constitution that protects one individual from another individual. Not until the 13th Amendment, which is no coincidence, right? That's when the federal government starts to get into the business of protecting natural rights. But the Congress created by the 1787 Constitution cannot pass a law that says one New Yorker cannot kill another New Yorker. Right. It cannot give you that most basic protection of natural rights of individuals, because the 1787 Constitution is really concerned with what I call following Akhil Amar, another one of my Yale professors, um, geostrategic considerations. The original Constitution is about making a nation out of the states, making the states cooperate, speaking with a single voice in foreign affairs. It's not about protecting individual natural rights. All of that comes with the 14th Amendment and the Civil War and Reconstruction, because that's when suddenly we need to protect the rights of people against their states. Because we've got the formerly enslaved people, the 14th Amendment says they're going to be citizens, the former Confederates don't like that, and they're trying to oppress these new citizens, and that's when the federal government and the Constitution really starts protecting individual rights. Yeah. Well, as we, as
1: we wind down, I just want to ask you a couple of uh, general questions. And, you know, one of the things that... I always say is to if you want to get people to buy into a story and you want to, you know, if you want to really be an agent for change, you have to have, uh, you know, uh, people with open ears, people that can understand the story. You know, and and in in reading your book, it just kind of made me feel that it was cruelly ironic that, you know, these immigrants who come to this country, they they pass the test, they know so much about the – constitution. And they know more than the, frankly, the majority of natural born citizens. And
2: that's, that's a problem. Yeah, that's a terrible problem. Uh, you know, the, the state of our education system is a terrible problem. Um, I mean, part of it is that we're just, we're pumping out so many STEM majors and not humanities majors, but part of it is, uh, at the secondary and high school level, I think Um, And I, you know, I try to write this book and I try to sort of go around the country um, at like the AP U.S. history high school level. Mm -hmm. I really want to talk to AP U.S. history classes or AP U.S. history teachers. um, Because I think that we can change the way we present American history and it might be less alienating to students who I think are not that receptive to the idea that Thomas Jefferson was a great guy who stated their deepest ideals because they know now that he enslaved his own children. You know, and while we could sort of suppress that or sweep it under the rug, maybe the standard story had some viability. But because of scholarship like the historians who inspired the 1619 Project and then popularizers like the 1619 Project, and I should say the 1619 Project is not some crazy fabrication right what it's saying is basically mainstream slightly revisionist history over the past 20 years Um, because of historians like that the standard story just doesn't hold water with the younger generations i think
1: well and finally on on a positive note i think this is something every american would like to know you know what? What gives you hope for the future? What is, um, you know, what does that story look like yeah, in this in this era of everything is so polarized, people are so down, the politics seems so so ruinous. You know, the, the world seems like a powder keg to some people. What 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 gives you hope?
2: Well, what gives me hope for the future? I I guess I would say is my students, um, because it really is inspiring to see. Every year, like a new crop of students comes into the law school um, and they want to change the world and they want to do good things. And part of what we have to do is tell them that it might not be as easy as they think. And there are these barriers. And, you know, they used to come in idealistic about the Supreme Court and now they don't come in quite as idealistic about the Supreme Court and the Constitution. But, you know, part of what I had to tell them was, look, the Supreme Court has actually been kind of reactionary. Historically, and there's a brief period where it seems like it's on the side of progress, but don 't expect that to continue forever um, now they 're sort of seeing that, I guess, but I still believe in the future I believe in future generations. I believe that we're getting better as a people, so I believe that the American story is a story of progress and not decline
1: yeah and and I agree if you look at uh, poverty and if you look at it we, we've made we have made. Worldwide, um, a, a lot of progress, and I'm also someone who don't doesn't believe that we're on the verge of a civil war. I think that uh, I think that uh, that this will pass. I mean, if you look at history, history, we've had a lot of contentious periods, including the civil war, obviously first and foremost, and we've gotten through them. So I think we'll 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 get through them. Well, on that positive note, Kermit it has been such an honor to have you at the Commonwealth Club. I hope, I hope you'll come back and uh, really enjoyed the conversation.
2: Thanks so much. Yeah, Thank I you. enjoyed it too.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you